Good day and welcome to Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. I'm Nancy Derringer, Communications Director for the Research Council, and in this podcast, we look at Michigan through a policy lens. Our discussions here are informed by our 102 years of experience doing nonpartisan, fact-based research on policy issues. We hope this podcast will serve as another way for the public to access our work, which is, as always, free and available to all at our website, crcmich.org. More on that at the end of the show. Today we'll be talking about an issue on many minds in the policy sphere, gerrymandering. That is to say, the drawing of legislative districts to unfairly favor one party over another. It's a partisan it's a bipartisan problem that recently came before the US Supreme Court, but the justices sidestepped the issue and sent two cases, one dealing with alleged gerrymandering by Democrats and another by Republicans, back to their respective lower courts. Here in Michigan, the Voters Not Politicians petition drive is teetering on the brink of making it to the November ballot, but still has one more legal hurdle. That's the proposed constitutional amendment to leave redistricting up to a nonpartisan commission, not the state legislature. One more complication in the mix, the 2020 census, which will be here before we know it and probably rob Michigan of another seat in Congress, which will set off a new round of redistricting in the new decade. Here with me to discuss it are my colleagues Jordan Newton and Eric Lufer. Jordan recently did some research on this issue in Michigan. Welcome, guys. Hello. Thank you. Hey, nice to be on. Sure. So let's talk first about what Jordan's research found regarding gerrymandering in Michigan. Do we have such districts here or not? Uh, Based on the research that we've done, we found that there's a few districts in particular, but a overall sense that the maps in uh, Michigan, both congressional, state house, and state uh, senate, kind of exhibit some sort of partisan bias. Okay. And how do we know this? We used a couple different metrics. One, the efficiency gap, which was the metric on trial with the Gilvey-Whitford case recently argued in front of the Supreme Court, as well as a few other metrics like the mean-median test and the T-test, which are statistical measures typically used to evaluate differences between groups. All three tests showed that pretty consistently Michigan's districts have had some level of partisan bias over the past few decades. Okay. We'll get get into that more in a minute. Go ahead, Eric. Yeah. So, Nancy, part of this is, um, you know, a skeptic might look at the results and say, well, the Republicans have maybe done a better job of selecting candidates uh, to put up for election to look at – how the races have been funded, issues like that. And the way we attempted to look at this was not only looking at a single election where you might have the coattails of President Obama or coattails of uh, Governor Snyder when he was being elected, but to look at it over time, over several decades. So those types of things will wash out over time. You'll have elections where the Republicans have fared better in statewide or national elections and elections where Democrats have fared better on statewide or national elections. And over time, these uh, tests that Jordan 
uh, talked about, they show the same results on a statewide basis that uh, that the gerrymandering shows up. So we, we've tried to control for some of the differences in what parties have been doing and um, and and yet gerrymandering is still evident within the state. And not only trying to control across the different times, but there are reasons why, you know, individual metrics might not be perfect. There are instances where, for example, the mean median test doesn't necessarily capture uh, gerrymandering perfectly or the efficiency gap might have some biases that other tests might. But we did a study of multiple tests so that we can kind of get the general picture across several different metrics to kind of see where Michigan's at. And all three of them agreed in this instance. Okay. And we, um, you know, it's, it's easy. I think most people, when they think gerrymandering, they'll throw up a few, um, crazy shaped maps, you know, that, that look like they were drawn by a drunk with a crayon, but that doesn't necessarily mean a district is gerrymandering just because it looks funny and extends, you know, across even, you know, county lines. That doesn't mean that it's, it's gerrymandering. It's much more complicated than that, right? Yeah. So there are a number of different factors that have to go into the process. Uh, One of the primary ones that can lead to some of these funkier lines are Voting Rights Act requirements, which require that uh, the state maintain certain representation for minority groups to ensure that they have the ability to elect candidates that they uh, try to elect when they have a large portion of the population in an area. Okay. Eric? Yeah, I was going to – we have in the report a map from Chicago, a congressional district in Chicago that, uh, you know, using that sort of Rorsach test that you say that you, you look at this blob on a piece of paper and what does that look like to you? It sort of looks like the headphones you might put on um, to listen to the listen to music or something like that. Uh, so that one, you sort of – the eye test says – Clearly, that's gerrymandered, but then you dig in a little deeper and you find out that was to maintain a Hispanic district uh, to keep the um, populations, Hispanic populations in those areas in a district so they can be represented and have their voice. So the eye test says gerrymandered, the data says uh, Voting Rights Act. Right. It's a great example of how these things play together. Right. So there are three major tests, um, statistical tests, that you use to reach this conclusion. Um, without going too deeply into the weeds for the listeners who are not statisticians, can you outline them? I think the one that's probably most easy for a layperson to understand is the efficiency gap. Could you talk about what that is? Yeah, so like I said earlier, the efficiency gap was the metric that was used to kind of demonstrate gerrymandering in the Gill case, uh, alleging Wisconsin's General Assembly was gerrymandered. The test looks at what are called wasted votes. These are votes that don't necessarily lead to or help a party lead to an election of a candidate. So any vote for a losing candidate or any vote beyond 50 percent of the two-party vote share uh, in a district would be considered wasted. Um, Wasted votes should theoretically 
be about even across the state. If one party is wasting significantly more votes than the other party, it indicates that there might be some level of imbalance in how the map is drawn. Uh, this happens usually when a district is packed or has a lot of voters of the same party, which kind of means they're wasting a lot of votes electing one candidate because they have 70, 80, 90 percent of the votes in that district. Or when cracked, they have 40 to 45 percent of the votes in a district, but aren't able to elect a candidate because they don't have a majority in that district. And when you kind of spread that out across a map where you have several districts that might be packed or might be cracked, then you're you know, winning a lot of large districts and losing by a lot of slim margins. There's kind of an imbalance there. And that's what the efficiency gap measures. Okay. Yeah. So uh, this map is particularly useful in states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania that tend to run close to purple. Uh, a fair num- fair part of the state is Republican, represented red, and another share of the state is de- Democratic or preponderance of the people have voted Democratic. Uh, represented with blue. So putting together, it tends to be very purple. Using that test in a state like Utah, where most of the state votes Republican, uh, you're going to have a lot of Democratic wasted votes. But that doesn't really tell you as much as it would in these very competitive states. Right. And is the mean median simply too far over uh, <laughs> a layperson's head to, to just talk about that very briefly? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, basically, this test just looks at the average vote share for a party in districts and the median vote share uh, or the, you know, the middle number if you were to list them all in numerically in order. Um, if there's a large difference between those two numbers, it kind of indicates that the party is either being advantaged if the median is significantly higher than the mean or disadvantaged if the other way around, because it kind of shows that uh, instead of it being kind of distributed as you might expect or across an average distribution, that a party is significantly overperforming in more than half the districts or significantly underperforming in more than half. It sounds as though uh, these tests are fairly modern um, in the sense that they are probably made possible with um, some fairly uh, heavy computer analysis of an awful lot of data. Um, To some extent, uh, a lot of the tests have actually kind of been developed to create a more simple test, you know. Anyone can kind of put together the uh, mean median or the efficiency gap if they just have a list of all the data in an Excel spreadsheet. It's relatively easy, but even pen and paper, you know, it's fairly simple calculations. A lot of these tests were kind of designed so that there was a little bit of transparency as well so that people can kind of understand how they worked without having, you know, a PhD in statistics or mathematics. I see. But Nancy, I think to your point, um, gerrymandering has been around as long as we've had a nation, been a nation. Uh, we have in the papers some of the history of how we came up with the term gerrymandering, and that goes back to 1812 or, or something in that period of time. So we've no long known about the idea of gerrymandering, uh, but what we see in the last couple of decades with the advancement in technology 
is that the map makers are becoming more sophisticated in their ability to know who's being advantaged and disadvantaged with the maps that they're drawing. And uh, on the other side of the table, people like us have greater ability now with technology to run these sort of uh, analyses, these statistical assessments, and and see how um, the districts advantage or disadvantage different people. So um, I think to Jordan's point, they're not terribly complicated to do, uh, but the technology has made it much easier to pull this information together and to do these assessments. So we know more now than they would have in the 1800s of who's being affected and, um, and, and why it, you know, digging in a little bit deeper with the advancements in technology and, and statistical um, methodologies. Okay. You know, you mentioned the Voting Rights Act, um, which brings up the point that, you know, there's the legislators who have this job have to balance a lot of factors that are sometimes difficult to reconcile in in doing this. Um, you mentioned the Voter Rights Act. I mean, there's the birds of a feather um, factor, which is the fact that people in urban areas are more likely to vote Democratic, people in rural areas are more likely to vote for Republicans. But could you kind of go over some of the things that, you know, some of the plates that they have to keep spinning as they as they figure this stuff out? Yeah, so federal requirements are that every district has to have the same population uh, as much as possible. Every district has to comply by Voting Rights Act standards if there is a majority of uh, minority groups in the area. Beyond that, there's not a whole lot of federal guidance, which kind of leaves it up to state factors. Um, And so there's, and in Michigan, we don't really have constitutional guidelines because of a court decision that invalidated the entirety of Michigan's redistricting law. Um, There are some other factors that have to be balanced. Uh, The APOL standards are ones that are typically used as guidelines. And as you kind of got into, there are also other considerations like geography. You're not going to have a district in the UP that's going to be able to vote Democratic no matter how uh, you decide to, you know, right. draw it up. That the, There's just not the uh, Democratic votes. So there are political geography considerations when looking at uh, issues like gerrymandering that have to be, you know, considered. We we should be clear. There won't be a congressional district, yes, but yes. we do have legislative districts yes. in the UP that have voted Democratic. Right. So, our mission here is policy and research, and not politics. But is it possible to say which districts or regions uh, were the most unfairly drawn, or is this a statewide problem? So there is. Um as we kind of got into political geography does make certain areas more difficult to draw in, you know, different ways. Um, particularly with any time you're dealing with districting places of heavier population centers are more likely to have, uh, problems, whether it's with packing and cracking or other issues that come up because there are just more people to divide and more ways to divide them. Um, when you have, 
that many people crammed into a much smaller area. You know, you don't have things like county lines. You don't have things uh, like city lines, even in some instances, like in Detroit, where you can be like, this is a city that is going to be the entirety of the district. You have to kind of make decisions on, you know, this part of the city is going to be in this district. This part of the city is going to be in this district. And those choices are kind of where a lot of the issues with gerrymandering pop up. I see. Um, Eric, talk a little bit about the problem with gerrymandering. I mean, besides the fact that you end up with, you know, lopsided um, representations in Lansing or, or Washington, I mean, this is something that, that can contribute to voter apathy. Um, what you, you know, you end up with uh, um, primaries that are essentially general elections. I mean, can you just discuss a couple of these things and, and why it doesn't really contribute to, to good government? Yeah, so a democracy that we like to think uh, Michigan and the United States is built on is uh, established with the idea that we will choose representatives to make decisions for us. And in doing so, everyone within a district will have an equal voice on who that representative would be. So uh, a fair system will give everyone an equal voice in creating that representative. Uh, when the districts are skewed to favor one party or another, that affects the voice of, uh, of people who um, do not feel the same as, as that majority that's been created. And, and so it erodes the trust of uh, people in their governments in a lot of ways that um, decisions are being made without listening to all of the people and what their desires are, um, that others are making decisions that are forced upon people. Uh, so th that's the big issue that we really see. Uh, the elections part of it, um, what happens when you have districts that are drawn to be safe for one party or another, it really puts all of the pressure on the primary election, uh, those that are chosen, those that are uh, conducted to choose the candidates that will run in the general election, uh, usually in November. Uh, so when you have a safe district, you have all of the pressure on choosing who will be that candidate for that party. And we know that primary elections are typically lower voter turnout. And now you have only one party choosing among two, three, four, sometimes five or six candidates and splitting their votes amongst all of them. So when you compile all those things together, you have low voter turnout, only people of one party, only people that happen to choose for that uh, candidate that prevails. So you might have as low as 15 or 20 percent of the people from a district choosing who will run in the general election, and they're pretty much assured of winning. Uh, so a very small majority of the people actually choosing the representative of the district uh, so again, that just erodes the confidence that their people's voices are being heard, erodes the trust in government, 
and uh, it's not for our good de- not good for our democracy. Right. And of course, in Michigan, we have our primary in August, which is, you know, it's, it's half the state is on vacation. Um, primary t- or turnout tends to be even lower. And, you know, so like you said, it's, a, it's just a few people end up choosing the representative for the entire district. So. Yeah. You know, and then what happens because you're only trying to win the favor of people in your party, uh, that instead of trying to appeal to the average voter, they're trying to uh, appeal to the most conservative, if it's a Republican party, or or the most liberal, if it's the Democratic party, uh, to try to sway the party votes. Uh, So you're not getting people who are... um, understand all of the life experiences of people in in their districts and not um, not beholden to everyone to represent their concerns when they go to Lansing or when they go to Washington, D.C. It's all about that base, as we say. So all about the base. Yes. Yeah, exactly. OK, that's, kind of, that's become, you know, abundantly clear in the last uh, couple of years as as we watch people just play to their base and um Right. Whether that's good for the state, good for the nation, um, it doesn't really matter as long as it plays well with the base. Right. So finally, can we briefly discuss the two U.S. Supreme Court cases that were recently sent back to the lower courts? I know Jordan has a, a blog on this, um, which will probably be published by the time this podcast is released. Uh, what was the significance of both of those cases, Jordan and why were why did the court sidestep them? So the Gil v. Whitford case was a little bit more direct in terms of what the court was supposed to analyze. And the this was district, the one out of Wisconsin, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, the district court in Wisconsin uh, ruled that uh, Wisconsin's maps violated uh, certain constitutional provisions of protection that allowed them to overturn the maps. Um, the Supreme Court kind of looked at the ruling for the and the ideas that the district court used and kind of determined that the plaintiffs in the case didn't exactly have standing or they didn't weren't the ones directly harmed by the entirety of the map. Um, this kind of sets a precedent that individuals do not have the ability to challenge the entirety of a district map uh, that might have some partisan gerrymandering problems, and instead that there have to be suits brought against either specific districts or you have to have plaintiffs in every single district that were harmed by uh, partisan gerrymandering, which kind of sets a different standard for what the case needs to look like. Um, Typically, when the Supreme Court rules and overturns a lower court decision in that kind of manner, determining that there's no standing of the plaintiffs, uh, the case is just over with. In this instance, uh, the Supreme Court decided that because partisan gerrymandering is kind of a significant issue, that the courts haven't really set clear precedent on it, that there's some level of importance to the case. And rather than completely ending it, they decided to send it back to the district court to allow the plaintiffs a chance to kind of revamp their defense, knowing kind of how the Supreme Court 
looks at these cases a little bit more. Um, this is and, the basic. This is the court basically telegraphing to the plaintiffs what they want to see. Um, oh, to to some extent, okay. they they didn't necessarily outline exactly what they want to see, but they did kind of explain the problems that they had with the case that was brought. Okay. Wisconsin is a little bit murkier. Um, in that case, the you district, mean Maryland is murkier. Or, yeah, Maryland is murkier. Um, was, uh, in that case, the um, district court refused to put a injunction on the maps, so they refused to kind of stop the use of those maps until a ruling occurred. Um, and the plaintiffs in that case wanted the Supreme Court to place those maps on an injunction uh, while they were waiting for a ruling because they thought that those maps did particular harm. Uh, the Supreme Court agreed with the lower court's decision in this instance, saying that uh, there was no need to place a map under an injunction, given that there was not necessarily enough evidence for them to be able to do so. Um, that case will continue in the lower courts okay. as the plaintiffs in Benesec will try to demonstrate that the congressional district that they're living in is, you know, hurting their right to free speech in terms of elections. Okay. So it'll be interesting to watch. Um, Jordan, correct me if I'm wrong, but Justice Kennedy was one of the um, one of the justices that was sort of on the forefront of this, uh, who back in the 1980s said that he saw this as a an issue that the courts could rule on that they it was something that they um, could get into where the courts before had tried to stay out of the politics of elections. Uh, so now with his re, uh, retirement from the court and you know who knows who's coming next, um, it may change the dynamics on how the justices are they, are they willing to keep on with this case or do they at some point wash their hands of it and say uh, they don't see a, a path for the court, a role for the court in these elections? Um, you know, this is maybe dangerous territory for us to be Supreme Court watching and trying to figure all that out. Um, but as I have gone through the paper and seen how Justice Kennedy's name has popped up in several of these cases – uh, I think his retirement maybe bodes uh, of greater significance on this issue, um, certainly on many others that the court will be dealing with over the years. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he definitely was the uh, swing justice to say um, that in the majority of circles, the kind of discussion was where Kennedy would side on some of these issues, and he's kind of the one who outlined uh, a lot of the thoughts in terms of how these cases should proceed in terms of evaluating a standard and a new metric to evaluate gerrymandering. And so with him stepping down, uh, depending on who his replacement is, uh, finding uh, you know five justices to overturn a map when several of the justices currently have kind of you know staked their position on we think gerrymandering is an unjusticiable issue or we think that gerrymandering is an issue that the courts can rule on. Uh, 
it'll be interesting to kind of see if any of the justices change or what the new justices that haven't had a chance to voice their opinion on uh, gerrymandering case, particularly whoever ends up replacing Kennedy, um, will decide on these issues. Okay. All right. Well, that seems probably a good note to um, end it on. Um, As usual, you can find this report, the blog, and all of our related um, products on our website, crcmich.org. And um, I thank you both for taking the time today. I guess more will be revealed. So, Thank you all. Okay. Bye. Thank you. And that will do it for this edition of Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. Remember, the council operates as a public resource, and all of our papers, along with blogs, op-eds, and other resources, are available for download at our website, crcmich.org. We operate as a nonprofit through the generosity of Michigan's corporations, foundations, and individuals like you. If you'd like to make a donation, go to our website, crcmich.org, and click on the contribution button on the homepage. We also welcome feedback, which you can send via email to crcmich at crcmich.org. I'm Nancy Derringer, and until next time, I leave you with this observation by our founding president, Lent Upson. The right to criticize government is also an obligation to know what you're talking about. Until next time, thanks for listening.